take your Bible and turn again to the wonderful letter to the Hebrews. Specifically, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. In childhood, all of us experience certain activities that serve as a rite of passage. Because of that, they become memories for us that are entrenched in our minds. And you may have experienced, if you're a parent, as I have, that some of those memories, those rites of passage, become even more significant and special when you find yourself as a parent helping your child through those things that you remember from your own childhood. One of those simple but special moments for me was the, the privilege of teaching my kids to ride a bike. You likely have had the same experience if you're a parent. Riding a bike, of course, is a huge part of American culture. It's, it's such a, a foregone conclusion that you will learn to ride a bike that we even have a phrase. It's like riding a bike, meaning once learned, it's never forgotten. But if you take yourself back to childhood, then you might remember that it's initially a pretty daunting and frightening experience to learn to ride a bike. It requires balance, coordination, and physical strength. And in addition to that, of course, it requires courage, bravery, and determination. But for most of us, learning to ride a bike also included either a parent or a special trusted friend or family member. And for me, I remember the moment in which I taught my children to ride their bikes because it was such a special privilege. And it's because in those early attempts of seeking to ride their bike, we have the privilege as a parent to be the support and the strength that they need to encourage them to keep trying, to encourage them to keep going. You remember how the process goes. You first have your, your child sit on the bike and you hold it steady so that it can't fall over and they, they get used to that. And then you walk alongside them holding the handlebars and the seat until they get used to that. And then you say, I'm going to let go of the handlebars. You steer, but I'm going to be holding on in the back and you pedal. And then they do that until they feel comfortable. And that progresses to you then jogging alongside them, still holding the seat on the back of the bike as they pedal and go faster and faster. And in that process, you begin to encourage them. You can do it. Keep going. Don't be afraid. I'm right here. I'm holding the seat. And I remember my kids saying, don't let go yet, Daddy. Don't, don't let go. I'm not ready yet. I'm not, I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. Just keep pedaling. Keep trying until eventually, there they go riding off down the sidewalk, doing it on their own. It's a fun, special privilege. In fact, it's really a metaphor for what we do as parents throughout their life. It's one of the early experiences that becomes something we do for much greater milestones later on. But it's, it's a blessing because in that moment, we have the privilege as a parent of providing both the, the physical and emotional strength and stability that our kids need to accomplish that task. And when it comes to the Christian life, it's crucial that we hold on to the fact that while we're called to be faithful and we're called to be steadfast in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are never left to our own strength in that pursuit. The commands of Scripture beckon us forward. They, they are, as if you will, the commands telling us, go this way, hold, hold the steering wheel straight, pedal like this. The, the commands of Scripture, they call us to keep moving forward. But all along the way, our Savior holds the seat. And when the, the, where the metaphor begins to break down is that as parents, we hopefully get to the point that we can let go of that seat and watch our kids ride on their own. But as believers, we have to remember the wonderful truth that our gracious God never lets go. 
He never lets go of that seat in the Christian life so that we have confidence, we have strength to keep moving forward in the Christian walk. But it does bring up the question, what does it look like for Jesus to hold the seat? What does it look like for him to be our spiritual support and help? Well, as we turn our attention now to a new section in the book of Hebrews, what we're going to find is that one of the ways that Christ does this, that he supports us in the Christian life, is through his role as our great high priest. He is our great high priest, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Now, before I read the text... Let me just remind you of where we've been. I'm going to zoom out and give you the the overarching outline. In fact, if you're an outline type person and you like that, we've printed off outlines of the entire book of Hebrews. They're back at the Connection Center. Go and take one of those. It's the outline that I'll be following as we move forward, and it'll show you, remind you of where we've been. But remember that the theme of this book is the superiority of Christ. And so far, we saw in chapter 1 that Jesus is superior to the prophets, Verses 1 to 3. And then we saw that Jesus is superior to the angels, picking up in verse 4 down through chapter 218. That led us into the first warning passage that we have seen so far in this book. There are several warnings. The first warning was not to neglect the gospel. That brought us then to, thirdly, Jesus is superior to Moses in chapter 3 in part of verse Uh, chapter 4, and contained in that section was the second warning, which is really what we've been in now for the last few months, beware of hard-hearted unbelief. Now, it's important to keep that in mind because today as we pick up in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, we enter into a new section that will run all the way through chapter 7, verse 28. So we'll be studying this section for some time. And the the particular point that the author is going to bring home over and over again in this section is that Jesus is superior to the priesthood. He's superior to the Old Testament priesthood. And you'll see this theme discussed again and again. We'll be looking at the Old Testament history behind the priesthood. We'll be looking at arguments for why and how Jesus specifically serves as our high priest. And we'll be looking at the way that role affects our salvation and how it affects our sanctification. And, you know, because the author covers this section over a long period of time, we'll be looking at several chapters on this. I'm going to do my level best not to get into details about Christ's priesthood that I know we'll be covering later. So if you have questions about Melchizedek and all those things that you know are there, we're going to get there, okay? But we're going to start in the order in which the author takes us. And what you have to understand is that here as he reintroduces this topic of the priesthood of Christ... He really begins with the application first. He's going to apply the the importance of this doctrine to us very personally, and then over the next few chapters, support what he's just said. So he's going to give some summary statements with no explanation. But don't you worry. We're going to have plenty of time. In fact, hopefully it'll be before the end of my life that we'll make it through 728, okay? So we're going to have plenty of time to look at the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to enjoy every bit of that. But this morning, we begin in verses 14 to 16. We'll actually study verse 14 and 15 today and 16 next week. But let's, let's read the text together. Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The simple theme of this section is this. As our great high priest, Christ secures our salvation and supplies our strength. As our great high priest, Christ secures our salvation and supplies our strength. And these verses are really built around two reactions that every Christian should have to Christ's ministry as our high priest. We're going to cover the first of those reactions today and the second next week. Here's the first reaction that we ought to have as we think about Christ as our great high priest. Verses 14 and 15, hold fast to faith. Hold fast to faith. He begins here in verse 14 with the word therefore. And throughout this letter, as is common in the New Testament, when we come to that word, there's a turn. There's a change in in thought, in emphasis, as there is here. And there's some debate if you read commentaries on this passage as to to what exactly this therefore ties back to. And some would argue that it, it doesn't tie back to what he just finished saying, but it skips all the way back to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. But as I've studied this text, I, I think that it's, it's difficult and, and actually incorrect to make that sharp of a division. When he says, therefore, I believe he's referring to the immediate context and the idea that he introduced back in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It's in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 that this idea of the high priesthood of Christ is first mentioned. So I do believe he has that in mind. But what he's done for us here is he's created sort of a sandwich with two pieces of bread. The first piece of bread comes in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. The second piece of bread comes here in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And in between that, you remember, we have that long warning that we just finished studying. That's on purpose. Let me remind you where we finished last time, if you haven't been with us in Hebrews. This is Hebrews 4, verses 11 to 13. It's the last passage we studied. He says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now in these verses, the author summed up this long warning that he he gave to us over the course of several weeks by explaining that we have to be diligent in our pursuit of Christ and that the word of God acts like a, a sharp sword that cuts right down into the inner man. It exposes, it flays or lays open your inner being so that your thoughts and motives and intentions are laid bare clear as day to the Lord. That's the the gift of the word, but it's also this this idea of judgment, that God knows what's truly in your heart. Now, he left us there, and if you are a a sane, rational person, when you hear that, that should shake you. That that should cause us to to tremble, that the thought of, of God that sees into the inner man, he sees all of the things that we work so hard to keep from others. It's laid clear before him. 
But now, I think the author understands that if he just leaves us there, if he were to end the letter there, we would have the, the false idea that what's needed for us to pursue obedience to Christ is just to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to give our best effort, always living under this cloud of fear that if our efforts don't match up to God's expectations, then we just have judgment and condemnation waiting for us on the other side. Uh, He knows that that would leave us despairing, and that's not his intention at all. And so he follows right out of that stern warning with a word of encouragement, a word of hope that balances what he's just said. Now, he introduced this idea, this balancing idea, back in chapter 2, as I mentioned before. So let's read that. Picture this as the first slice of bread that entered into the judgment or the, the, the warning section. Hebrews 2, verses 17 to 18. He said, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, speaking of Christ, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that is, satisfaction for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, he introduces that idea there, and he comes back to it now in our text with the benefit of having gone through this warning section. So we have the sober idea of warning and judgment that that is a motivator, but it's not the only motivator. He comes alongside now with the word therefore and introduces this positive reminder. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, since we have a great high priest. He uses the word since because he's already introduced this idea back in chapter 2. He's returning back to it since we have a great high priest. Now, he's going to just mention that as a fact and then prove it in the weeks ahead. But for now, just take him at his word that we indeed have a great high priest. And he begins with the application. The truth is he wants us to be motivated by this idea. It's not just a a call to to understand some, some theological truth. He wants it to have an effect on us. Now, if you do a word study on the phrase high priest, what you're going to find is it's very common in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you've read the, the scriptures, you understand this. But if you do a word study on the phrase great high priest, what you'll see is that this is the only usage of that phrase in the entirety of the canon of scripture. The title high priest would have been very familiar to the original Jewish audience. And if you have any familiarity with the Old Testament, then you know that under the Old Covenant, God established a priesthood. And, and these priests assisted in the, the people in the worship of God. If you wanted to offer a sacrifice or a gift to God, you came to the temple. The priests were there to receive that animal or whatever the gift or sacrifice was. And then they would follow the prescribed uh, procedures in the scripture for offering that to God. They had a special role as priests. Remember, the priests had to be Levites. They had to be blood relatives of Levi. But the high priest is different. This is a special role. You have the the priests in general who assisted in the worship and sacrificial system to God, but then you have the, the high priest who presided over the other priests and who had one particular privilege that was unique to him. And that is that on the Day of Atonement, 
the high priest had the privilege of entering into the most holy place, the holy of holies. He would enter into that place one time a year by himself to offer a blood sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people. That was a unique privilege that only he had. And the high priest had to be from the bloodline of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And he was to serve in that role for the entirety of his life. It would be passed down to his eldest son once he passed away. The high priest then served in a, in a unique role, and that role demanded respect and appreciation from the people because he was, in a real way, their representative. He went into the presence of God, the, the physical representation on earth at that time of the presence of God, and offered on behalf of the people a blood sacrifice for atonement. All the people needed atonement, but only one was allowed to come in and offer the blood sacrifice for that atonement. And so to say that we as Christians have a high priest is in and of itself a grand statement. It's a gift to have a high priest who serves as our representative before God. But that's not what he says. He says that we as Christians have a great high priest. The Greek word for great is, is the word we get the word mega from. So it looks like a, a mega high priest. We have a great high priest. What he's saying is that we as Christians have the high priest who's over every other high priest in existence. He is the great one. There is none like him. He's greater even than Aaron himself. In fact, he's greater than the entirety of the priesthood wrapped into a group. He is the great high priest. Now, in this particular passage, he's simply going to prove that with three monumental descriptions. So why would he say he's the great high priest? Three reasons. There'll be more as we continue our study, but three reasons this morning. Description number one is his location. His location. That is where this priest ministry takes place. Notice what the text says, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who has passed through the heavens. Now, when he says that our high priest has passed through, don't misunderstand. He's not saying that Jesus sort of went too far and went through heaven, now he's on the other side, okay? Well, he's using language that, that, that's Old Testament language. This should draw up an image in our mind. Also remember that the people at this time thought about heaven as, as really three layers of heaven, the sky, what we would call the sky, would be the heaven number one. Uh, the outer space, as we would call it, would be heaven number two. And then the place of God's presence would be the third heaven, where God is. So when he says he passed through the heavens, that is, he, he ascended through the sky, through outer space, into that place, the realm of God, the presence of God. And, and this is unmistakable Old Testament language that brings up the image of the high priest entering in on the Day of Atonement into that special holy place, the Holy of Holies. Because you remember, what was it that surrounded the holy place, the Holy of Holies? It was a veil, a special veil from, from floor to ceiling. So you couldn't see in and you certainly couldn't enter in. And so in order to get into that place, the high priest had to pass through the veil. Well, the veil that the great high priest has passed through into the presence of God is the heavens. Which is to say, 
This high priest, unlike any other high priest before him, carries out his ministry by one time entering through the veil of the heavens into the literal, real presence of God. He doesn't stand at a place that is a a physical representation on earth. This is not a symbol. This is actual. He's passed through into the very presence of God the Father, and his ministry then takes place at the right hand of God himself. We'll speak of this later in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. This is that Old Testament language where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem was simply an illustration of the presence of God. The people always understood. Read the Psalms. When the temple was still active, they would still speak of our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The people understood that that this is a physical representation, but God, his, his presence is said to be in the heavens, although we understand he is everywhere at the same time. He is especially present there, residing in the heavens. This high priest then is the great high priest because he has ascended into heaven. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. His his disciples witnessed on that day him passing through the heavens, ascending into the very place where God dwells. And if we doubt that, the author wants to make it really clear who he's talking about when he says someone serves as the great high priest. And so we have a second description, his humanity, his humanity. Look back at the text. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus. Jesus is the second description. This great high priest is none other than Christ Jesus our Lord. The author doesn't want you to have to assume this from the context. He just comes right out and says it. I'm talking about Jesus. It is he who is the great high priest and he alone. But in using the name Jesus, he refers to the humanity of Christ. Because the name Jesus is the name given to him at his birth, at his incarnation. He came to be known as Jesus because that name was given by the angels to Mary and Joseph. That's what they were to name this child. And so understand you couldn't be a priest unless you were a human being. There, there is no angel ever spoken of as a priest. No, no other being is ever given the, the right of priesthood except for a human being. And so Jesus had to become flesh. He had to be incarnate in order to become this great high priest. But of course we understand his humanity is by far not the end of the story. And it's not the end of the story here in these descriptions. There's a third description of this great high priest, his divinity. His divinity. Look back at the text. Not only is he passed through the heavens and is he Jesus, but he's also the Son of God. The Son of God. By referring to Jesus as the Son of God, the author's clear intention is to highlight the divinity of Christ. That that he is fully and completely, truly God. That is to say, every aspect of the character of God that's essential to his being as God, he shares with Christ perfectly and fully. He is truly God. 
but we just saw that he's also truly man, which means what we have here in this person is the most unique being in the entirety of the universe because he is the God-man, truly God, truly man in one person. Therefore, he is the great high priest. There's none like him. There's none that can be compared to him. When you put all this together, we have one who is truly God and truly man standing at the right hand of God in his actual presence as our representative. Now you understand why he is the great high priest. He's passed through the veil. In fact, the entirety of the the Old Testament priesthood as a system pointed to the coming of this one. This one who would make real atonement, lasting atonement, eternal atonement. And that truth should grab a hold of you. It should grip you by the shirt. It should wake us up this morning to think of the fact that we have this privilege. He wants you to understand, you are privileged. We have this great high priest. We have him as our representative, savior, and king. But the author's intention is not simply to prove the priesthood of Christ. No, it's, it's actually all of this is a setup to bring us to a conclusion, a motivation. Because remember, he said, since we have, the idea when you use the word since is that something else is coming. We're supposed to do something in light of that fact. And here is the, the, the primary verb of this section. Since we have a great high priest, let us hold fast our confession, he says. Let us hold fast our confession. Now that should sound strikingly familiar if you've been with us because it's the same admonition he's given us over and over again in the book of Hebrews. We've been talking about holding fast our confession for months and yet he brings us back here again. And it's because, again, the author is genuinely concerned that there are some in this contemporary audience receiving this letter that are, that are, that are teeter-tottering in their faith. They're, they're on the edge of stepping outside of the community of faith and, and somehow abandoning their faith in Christ. We don't know the full details of why or exactly what was happening, but the author is very concerned about their spiritual state. And so, again, he comes back to this one admonition As we think about the fact that Jesus Christ is our great high priest who represents us at the right hand of God, may that motivate us to hold fast. Hold fast, Christian, to your confession. This is now the positive side of that admonition where we have the the negative side in the stern warning of judgment. Both are true and both are motivating. They should be. Judgment is just as real as grace. They are realities of the character of God. But here, he wants us to understand that judgment alone is not our only motivation. Instead, we also have this positive motivation of who we have as our representative at the right hand of God. It's as if he is, through the warning section, shaking us awake, shaking us from our slumber. But now he takes hold of our face and turns our eyes again to Jesus and says, look, look at him. Look at the one that you have as your representative. Be encouraged. It's not just running away from judgment. It's running to this one, 
to love and worship and, and, and to know this one in a true right relationship. And so he says, as you point your face to that great high priest who's passed through the heavens, then hold on to your confession with a, with a white-knuckled grip and don't let go. Let that truth be a motivation to us. When we look to ourselves, we inevitably will be despairing and depressed and disappointed. But when we look to Christ, we come away with hope, motivation, and joy in the Christian life. And as we meditate on the priesthood of Christ, there are really two reasons that the author has in mind that this should be a particular encouragement to us. Two motivations as we think about Christ as our great high priest. Why should that motivate us to hold fast? Well, first, his identification with our weakness. His identification with our weakness. If you look back at the passage in verse 15, it begins verse 15 with the word for. That indicates he's now going to give some reasons. He's just made a statement, hold on to your faith, for, for these reasons. And what we're going to find is that both of the reasons that he gives are wrapped up in this unique aspect of Christ that he is fully God and fully man. We call this the, the hypostatic union, the union between the two natures of Christ in one person. And the fact that he's fully God and fully man qualifies him to represent us and to help us in ways that are unique only to him. It's, again, one of the reasons why he is the great high priest. Now, the first reason here in verse 15 is stated negatively, but it actually makes a positive point. Look back at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Again, that's stated negatively, but it makes a positive point. You know, when we consider the the exalted status of Jesus, this, this being, this, this God-man who's passed through the heavens, who, he's at the right hand of the Father, he's God himself, we can be tempted to think that he's so far removed from us and our experiences here on earth that he, he just really can't relate to us. He's, he's so different, you know, when, especially when we're struggling with the weightiness of our sin and the trials of life. We're sinfully tempted to believe that our Savior is hes good to us, but, you know, he just really can't understand. Our experience is so, so vastly different than his. After all, God's perfect in holiness. He's, he's supreme in his sovereignty. He's, he's omnipotent. He's omniscient. It's not just that God knows the end from the beginning. It's that he ordains it and actively brings it to pass. How can, can that kind of being possibly identify with weak, finite beings like us, with all the struggles and failures that we have on a daily basis, sometimes moment-by-moment basis. Well, the author wants to remind us that that kind of thinking when it comes to Jesus is exactly backwards. It misses the great implications of the fact that God became flesh. It misses the implications of the incarnation. We don't have a high priest who's out of touch or or who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses as human beings. You know, though it's stated negatively here, we can flip it around and state it in the positive. This is what the author is really saying. He says, we as Christians have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. 
That's the point. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Now just think about that for a moment. Let that sit in. We have a high priest who represents us in the literal presence of God at the right hand of the Father who perfectly and experientially understands what it is to be human with the weaknesses that come with humanity except for sin. He knows all of it. Not just by knowledge, not just by textbook, but by experience. The author's emphasizing the fact that when Jesus became a man, he took on real human flesh, true humanity, and that means he didn't cheat. Jesus didn't take on a kind of humanity that, you know, that, that didn't have to suffer the weaknesses of, of the frailty of the flesh. And we know this uh, from Scripture clearly. Think about some of the, the aspects of weakness that Jesus experienced. Think about physical exhaustion. You ever had that? You know, Jesus knew what it was to be physically exhausted to the point that you remember as he's carrying his cross, he literally comes to the end of himself. He loses his physical strength. He can't take another step and he collapses under the weight of the cross so that another has to be brought and to carry it the rest of the way. But additionally, he understood what it was on multiple occasions. This is something that always convicts me about our Lord. He understood what it was to need physical rest and to even seek physical rest, only to get to the place where he intended to rest and be met by a group of people who needed him. Ever had that happen? Mom and dad, why is it that your kids want to talk for four hours right at bedtime when you've had all day? You're, you're right, on the, right on the cusp of rest and relaxation. It's right there, and yet it's so far away. Jesus knew that on an infinite scale. Listen to Mark 6, verses 30 to 34. This is right after, I love this in context, this is right after he sent out the 12 to do ministry. It's their first little ministry trip. He gives them abilities to go out. They're able to heal the sick and cast out demons and preach the gospel. He gathers them all back and says, how did it go? So he's hearing the stories, and this is what happens. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. He says, you know what, we've done a lot of ministry. We've been working hard. Let's get out of here. Let's, let's get to a secluded place and let's go away for a while. And here's the reason. He says, for there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. This is ministry at the highest level. It's moment-by-moment moment ministry to the point that he can't even have time for a meal. So let's just get away. Verse 33 Verse 32, they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. Just think about that. Think about getting away on vacation. Just, I just need to get out. Just you and you know, just get some time away. And you get all you pack, you get down there, you drive, and there's a huge crowd of people waiting on you for help. And yet, what does Jesus do? Verse 34, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion. Felt compassion for them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. 
Jesus knew what it was to be physically hungry. In fact, I would go as far as to say Jesus knew what it was to experience starvation. You remember in Matthew 4 when Jesus goes out into the wilderness, he goes without food for a period of 40 days. In one of the great understatements in Scripture, in Matthew 4, 2, it says, And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Yes, very hungry. He knew what it was to be hungry. What about emotional pain? Not only did Jesus know what it was to have physical weakness, but he knew the feelings of emotional, emotional heaviness and of grief. You remember that Jesus' adopted father is named Joseph, and the last record that we have of Joseph in Scripture is in conjunction with Jesus going to the temple as a 12-year-old boy. There's no mention of Joseph in the ministry of Christ, which has led many to believe it's very likely Joseph died before Jesus even began his ministry. If that's true, then Jesus certainly knew the pain of the loss of an, an earthly father figure. But of course, we also know the pain that he felt over the loss of a close friend in Lazarus in John 11. It says, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. The author's point here is that Jesus understands experientially what it is to endure real weaknesses that come from being a human being. But there's even more here because the Greek word translated as sympathizes means more than just understanding something by experience. It means more than just the fact that Jesus went through it too. William Lane says it this way, The special nuance of sympathizes extends beyond the sharing of feelings. It always includes the element of active help. In this context, the stress falls on the capacity of the exalted high priest to help those who are helpless. You understand what that means, Christian? It means that Jesus not only knows what it is to be a weak human being, but because of that experience, when he sees his people in their weakness, his heart goes out to them and he offers to them his help and his strength. He comes to the aid of his people. It means that he sees you, that he cares for you, and that he's committed to coming alongside and helping you. But it's at this point that the author now turns his attention to the, the aspect of our human weakness that is, in fact, the most unrelenting. It's the daily battle that we all face with temptation towards sin. And to our astonishment, the author now explains that Jesus identifies with human weakness to the point that he knows experientially what it is to be tempted just like you and me. But he also includes another encouraging aspect here because not only does Jesus know what it is to be tempted, he knows what it is to perfectly resist that temptation. This is the second reason that we ought to be encouraged to hold fast to faith by the high priesthood of Christ. And it's his accomplishment of a perfect life. His accomplishment of a perfect life. Looking back at verse 15 again, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He begins with but. Remember that first reason was stated in the negative. 
now with the word but. He's turning the equation. He's going to state it in the positive in the second half here. Not only can our high priest sympathize with our weaknesses, generally speaking, but we also have a high priest who can sympathize with how our weakness comes with a temptation then to sin in our weakness. It says specifically, he is one who's been tempted in all things as we are. Now before I dive into the nuts and bolts of that statement, I want to answer a question that may be in your mind if you're a student of Scripture. And that is the fact that James clearly says that it's impossible for God to be tempted. James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And so some in your mind, you may be thinking, how do we reconcile these two passages where it says here that he's been tempted in all things as we are, and yet James says that's impossible for God to be tempted. And the answer to that is there is no contradiction here because of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. This is, this is what the author's been saying from the beginning. Jesus is the only being in existence that has two natures in one person so that he is at the very same time fully God and without diminishing any aspect of that deity, he takes to himself full and true humanity. So when it says here that Jesus knows what it is to experience temptation, he's not stating that Jesus is tempted in his divinity but in his humanity. He became a man so that he could truly experience that temptation. Understand that there are many things that God is incapable of doing that Jesus actually did in real life. For example, it's impossible for God to experience hunger, to experience thirst. Certainly, it's impossible for God to die, and yet Jesus did all of those things. How? Because he did those things in his humanity while maintaining the fullness of his deity. This is that mysterious union again we call the hypostatic union. Now, here's the amazing thing. In choosing to take on humanity, Jesus was making a decision to have both a divine and human nature forever. Understand, Jesus didn't give up his human nature after he rose from the dead. When we think of going to heaven, we ought to think about seeing Jesus face to face, not not as a metaphor. It's because Jesus still has a human face. It's a fully glorified human face, but it is nonetheless a human face. When he says that he's passed through the heavens, how did the disciples see him in that ascension? Bodily. He bodily ascended into the heavens, and so we are to think of him there as our representative, still as the God-man, fully God and fully man. And so in his ascending to the Father, here's the point, his ability to sympathize with our weaknesses remains untarnished. Jesus has not, in his ascension, forgotten about his earthly experience. It has not passed him by. And so that the result of that then is that we have in Jesus, look at the phrase, one who has been tempted in all things as we are. In all things as we are. Let those words sink in just for a minute. 
in all things as we are. What it means is that Jesus experienced the full gamut of temptation in his human life. There is no area of temptation that was not thrown at him. And let me help you by thinking of it this way. Think of, of Satan and, and his attempts to overthrow God's plan of redemption. He understood who Jesus was. He understood the importance of him living a perfect life. And so when Satan tempted Jesus, you can rest assured that he threw the book at him. When he tempted Jesus, he used every skill that he has learned over thousands of years of tempting humanity successfully into sin. He threw it all with the full intensity that he could muster at Jesus Christ. He experienced all sorts of temptation as we experience temptation. In fact, Jesus experienced temptation to a degree that goes beyond temptation that we've ever experienced. And the reason is... Because we have given in. And so we never got to the end of the temptation because we broke before it ever got there. And so Jesus experienced the fullness, the full extent, the full strength of that temptation because he never broke. He never gave in. Satan tempted him until he was exhausted of his attempts at temptation. Start to think about the temptation of Jesus when he says all in all things, here's just a few examples. We know that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4. And we know that that temptation, it says, came after he had gone without food for 40 days. We have a term in English, hangry. <laughs> it takes about three hours for me to be tempted towards that. 40 days. Satan waited until he was at a place of true physical weakness and tempted him then, yet without success. We know that Jesus experienced the temptation of being constantly misrepresented, of being blasphemed and hated by the very ones he came to save. You ever been tempted to sin because someone misrepresented you or misunderstood you, falsely made accusations against you? Try this on for size, Mark 3, 20-22. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they couldn't even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he's lost his senses. They're saying, he's, he's nuts. He's gone crazy. But it gets worse. In verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. That is, he's got the devil possessing him. He's demon-possessed. And he cast out the demons by the ruler of demons. Now, how's that for a misrepresentation? To call the ministry of Christ the ministry of Satan. And yet, through the pain of that misrepresentation, Jesus never sinned in his response. Not only this, but Jesus knew what it was to experience that emotional pain of being misunderstood and misrepresented and mocked by his own family members. You ever been mistreated by your family? Try this. Try being the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, God in human flesh, who lives, lived a perfect life in front of your siblings, literally. They saw you from their birth, because you were the oldest, live a perfect life. And yet you come and, and do ministry and, and do these things and they won't believe in you. Not just that, but they mock you. They make fun of you. 
Jesus knew that. Jesus knew the experience of temptation from his close, most intimate circle of friends. When Peter sought to draw him away from his resolve to the cross by saying, Lord, these these things will never happen to you. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Because he sees in that friend's voice a temptation from the enemy, Matthew 16. Jesus knew the temptation that comes with knowing that your death is imminent. It's a hard state to live in when you get that diagnosis and you know it's coming and there's nothing you can do about it. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that pain. In fact, Jesus knows the pain of knowing that his death is not only imminent, but it will be excruciatingly painful both physically and emotionally because he knows that that in dying in this way, he will for the first time experience something other than perfect harmony and unity with the Father. In fact, he will experience the wrath of the Father poured out on him for sins that were not his own. In fact, if you doubt that, why do you think it was he sweated drops of blood in the garden? Just think about the internal pressure. You know the pressure that comes from trials of life and from temptation, that internal battle that starts to wage where you physically feel like, I'm going to pop, I'm going to burst if I keep going like this. Jesus had that sense of of feeling as he thought about, as he anticipated not just the physical death, but the the wrath of God being poured out upon him to the point that he he experienced a real medical condition of, of blood pouring out of his sweat pores. So the next time you feel the internal pressure rising within you because of stress or temptation and you think, I've, just, I've gotten to the breaking point, I can't take it anymore, I've got to get, give in, just ask yourself, am I sweating drops of blood? Jesus knows what it is to experience human weakness, human stress, human emotional pressure, as well as the temptations that arise out of those weaknesses but he also knows how to do all of that without sin. Because he ends that verse, yet without sin. You understand what that means? You know, some have falsely said because Jesus didn't experience sin, he can't really sympathize with our weaknesses. That Jesus would have had to sin to really be able to help us. Of course, that's blasphemy. But understand What Jesus actually did provides far more encouragement than any fellow sinner ever could. Think of it this way. When you desire to be better at something, you don't go find someone who's in the same terrible shape you're in for help. You go find someone who's doing what you want to do at a very high level, who's mastered that ability, and you say, help me. That's what we have in the Lord Jesus imperfection. We have one who understands exactly what it feels like to be human, who understands the pressures of life and temptation, and yet who has made it through those things perfectly, who offers to you not only salvation, which would have been enough, but actual, real, tangible help in this life to help you walk in a way that honors the Lord. That's what we have in our great high priest. The fact that Jesus lived a perfect life doesn't mean he's out of touch. It means he's the only one who can help you in your mess of sin. And that help comes in two ways. It secures our salvation. And it supplies 
help for sanctification. First of all, it secures our salvation. Understand that the gospel hinges upon the perfection of Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we have sinned day in and day out since our birth. We deserve the wrath of God. And we can do nothing to make ourselves right or bring ourselves to God. The only thing that will work is if another one, a substitute, takes our place. And that substitute has to be perfect, morally, completely perfect. And the Lord Jesus Christ came, and the reason that he came and lived into adulthood is so that he could live the life that we should have lived. Never having sinned. Think about that. That means never a sinful thought, never a sinful motive, never a sinful word, and never a sinful action. Internally, externally, perfect. And he did that So that he could offer that perfect life as a sacrifice to God to pay for your sins and for mine. For everyone who would humble themselves in repentance and faith before God. Saying that Jesus Christ alone is my only hope of salvation. I put my faith in his life, death, and resurrection, not in my own efforts. That's the good news of the gospel. And Jesus secured that good news in part by living in our place so that he could then die in our place. That is why Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But not only that, Jesus' perfect life secures our salvation, but secondly, it supplies tangible strength in the midst of the battle with sin and temptation. Because remember what we said, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, which means he not only understands, but he's here to help. His heart goes out to us, and his strength is offered and extended to us. Next Sunday, we'll be looking at how we access that strength But this morning, we're simply looking at the fact that the strength that he provides for us is the motivation to hold fast, to hold on to our confession. And as we close, that is the application of this passage. Hold fast your confession of faith. We understand now that holding fast is in part accomplished by meditating on and fixing our gaze upon who Jesus Christ is, our great high priest. Listen, if you're here this morning and your faith has begun to weaken, if you've slipped again into that same old pit of sin, if you're weighed down with the battle of temptation, if you're drowning under the weight of human weakness because of of the trials and stresses of life, the author of Hebrews speaks to you clearly this morning and says, hold fast, brother, By considering who it is that represents you in the presence of God the Father. It is none other than our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. What he says is it's because Jesus stands there that we have strength, hope, and joy here. He is the anchor of our salvation. He's the anchor of our life. He's the reason that we have any ability to live For the glory of God. And so Christian, hold fast to faith as you meditate 
on the one who is your representative, our great high priest. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's, uh, it's difficult to put into words how grateful we are for your representation of us. We have no desire to represent ourselves because we have nothing to say. We have nothing to offer. We are in complete, desperate dependence upon you. But we thank you that you not only represent us before the Father, you strengthen us here to live a life that increasingly honors you. You strengthen us in the midst of the battle with sin. You strengthen us as we struggle with the weaknesses of our own humanity. We thank you for the hope, the enduring hope that we have in you and you alone. Help us to be encouraged to walk more faithfully with you because of what we've studied today. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.